just fantastic worship, and we're certainly glad that you're still joining us. You know, we gave a lot of thought this year to how we wanted to do uh, Holy Week with Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter, especially with all that's going on in our culture right now. And what you all need to know is that it was uh, mine and our collective decision that if ever God's people and the community around uh, God's people, our community, uh, needed to focus on this last week of Jesus's life before his death and resurrection, it's now. Because as you're going to see today, there are things contained in the Palm Sunday message, certainly the Good Friday message, and then also in Easter Sunday, obviously, that are incredibly pertinent and relevant to what's going on around us right now. You're going to see that as we go along today. So uh, we are celebrating, focusing on Holy Week uh, as a church this week, and we're glad that all of you are joining us right now, and and I think you're going to be glad that you did as well. Even if you haven't understood it as much, maybe you're new to the faith or seeking, uh, you're going to be able to dial in really well with us over the next week. So uh, let me pray for us right now, and we're going to then open up God's Word. Father, we love you and we thank you for your providence, your sovereignty, and even, Lord, your closeness in our lives. Lord, we don't always feel it, but we claim that by faith. And Lord, we're going to learn today that you do come to us, just not always as we think you should or might, but you do come to us. And so, Father, I pray that as we open up your word right now to that passage that Neil read earlier out of Matthew chapter 21, this this triumphal entry, if you will, into, into Jerusalem that Jesus and his disciples did, I pray that you'd help us to understand rightly that event. And Lord, as I pray so often, then may we apply it rightly and diligently to our lives today. God, there's a lot of fear and unknown in our culture right now. If ever we needed uh, intimacy with you and and your protective providential hand, it's now. And so, Lord, show us through this amazing account, this historical account, God, what you have done and what you continue to do for your people and even this world. That's my prayer, and I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And where you are right now, we all say together, amen. So if you've noticed the title to uh, the message today, it's a catchphrase that many of us have heard before. It's the phrase, things are not always what they seem. Things are not always what they seem. And here's my guess. Most of us have heard that phrase, and we've even had experiences in life where things are not always what they seemed. I don't think I'll ever forget my first conscious reality or my conscious mem- remembrance uh, of this experience that things are not always what they seem. I was in second grade. And just so you know, I had a fantastic second grade year because my first grade year was not that great. Second grade year, I, I had Mrs. Seabrook as my teacher. And here's what you simply need to know about Mrs. Seabrook. She was like Mrs. Doubtfire, if you've ever seen that movie. I mean, this woman was just amazing. She was fun. She'd play with us as kids. She was strict as well. She had discipline. But you could tell she loved the kids, and she loved to teach us and help us learn. She even ran a day camp in the summer called Weehawken Day Camp that my parents sent me to each summer. If you had me as a child, you would have sent me as well to day camp. And and I loved going to camp. We'd ride horses and play sports and swim, and Mrs. Seabrook made all that happen. 
But I'll never forget one Friday, I'll remember this now, even though it happened, you know, almost 50 years ago. I remember one Friday, she said to us as we were getting ready to go away for the weekend, she said, children, on Monday, I have a surprise for you. And we all perked up and started saying to her, what is it? What is it? What's the surprise? She said, you're going to have to wait until Monday. But this was Mrs. Seabrook, so we thought this surprise had to be great. We thought chocolate cake or ice cream or like reptiles, maybe a reptile show. And, and all weekend, I can remember thinking, I can't wait till Monday to get to school and, and experience Mrs. Seabrook's surprise. <clears throat> so Monday came around, and I can remember all the kids, you know, excited, just saying, what's the surprise? What's the surprise? You said, you're going to have to wait till this afternoon. So we waited all day long, and, and about middle of the afternoon, or about an hour before school is going to end, she said, okay, I'm ready to unveil my surprise to you. And then she looked at us and she said, today, I'm going to teach you how to write in cursive. That was my response as well. I, I can vividly remember feeling so let down. I thought, right in cursive. I'm not even sure I knew what that was, but that sounds like a lesson. That sounds like you're going to teach us something, and, and writing hasn't been fun up to this point, and so I, I, I never felt more let down in my life. And it was at that point that I learned things are not always what they seemed. My guess is that each of you have learned that as well. You could tell me a similar story of how you've learned things are not always what they seem. Now, you're wondering, what in the world does this have to do with Palm Sunday? <laughs> what does this have to do with Jesus riding into Jerusalem a week before his death and resurrection? And here's the answer, just about everything. <laughs> it means just about everything. For if ever things were not what they seemed, it was with that original Palm Sunday event. We read the story earlier, Neil did, from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. And it's fascinating, when you look closely at this text, as I have now for, for 30, 40 years, every Palm Sunday rolls around, I read the same texts out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When you look closely at this text, you will notice three main parts to it. Let's walk through it briefly so that we understand deeply and rightly this story. And the three main parts are the prep, the preparation, the arrival, and then the response the prep, the arrival, and the response. So first, let's look at the prep, the preparation phase. Now, the story begins, you might remember, with Jesus and his 12 close friends, the disciples. It says they were, quote, approaching Jerusalem, approaching Jerusalem. And the reason they were heading for Jerusalem is they were going there for the Passover, the largest Jewish celebration of the year. You remember that, commemorating the great Exodus event in the Old Testament when God struck down all the Egyptian children but passed over the Israelite children in order to convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. You see, all good Jews in the first century made this yearly pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And a city that at one point would have maybe 30,000 inhabitants would balloon up to 150,000 people in the first century for the Passover. It was a huge event, the biggest event of the year. And Jesus, being Jewish, was making his way with his disciples, some of whom were also Jewish, to Jerusalem. 
So what you need to simply note, and the reason I spent a minute on this is so we'd all feel this, is that this was a very typical, usual, normal event. It's a normal scene being described here so far. Now, as they were approaching the city, about two miles outside of it, they camped at a town called Bethphage. And as they were setting setting up camp, Jesus says to two of his disciples the following. Look at verses 2 and 3 of Matthew 21. Jesus is speaking, and notice what he says, because this normal scene is going to turn kind of weird right now. He says, go to the village ahead of you. Mark and Luke tell us it was the village of Bethany. So go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Now, folks, it's important that you don't miss what's going on here, because what has started is a rather typical, normal scene. Jesus and his buddies going to the Passover celebration has now wandered into the realm of strange and kind of freaky. At least that's how they would have originally read this story when it first came out. Because though what Jesus does here is simply order up an animal, the way that he orders it up is borderline miraculous because he orders up an animal that he has never seen, but he knows is there. And he doesn't have a cell phone like we do today or satellite technology that we have today. No, this is the first century. He just knows it is there. How he knows, we don't know. So that's borderline miraculous. And then notice that he, re, he relies on an, an authority mindset in, in ordering this up as well. Kind of a, a what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine mindset in making sure that the disciples secure this donkey and colt. You see, when it says there in verse 3, and I hope you caught it, that, that if anybody says anything to you, Jesus says, just tell them that the Lord needs it. The Lord. Jesus isn't using that phrase, the Lord, like we use it today. We use it in hindsight, referring to the Lord, Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the second person of the Trinity. That's what we mean by Lord. When Jesus used it in the first century there, it was used more in in that monarchy environment where it referred to royalty, or, or even in the military, somebody who was above you. They used it for a VIP, the Lord, in that sense. Many human beings were called Lord. It doesn't necessarily mean divinity there. He, Jesus is just using the authority that he has to order up this animal, the authority of a rabbi, ordering up an animal that he'd never seen and somebody they didn't even know who owned it. That's an unusual scene. I was trying to think what a modern-day parallel will be. This is a really good one. Uh, Say Rustin and I, Rustin, one of our other teaching pastors, is sitting in my office uh, just talking one day, and and, and I said, hey, you want to get Jason's Deli today? And he said, yeah, let's get Jason's Deli. And so I say to him, well, here's what I want you to do. I'm the senior pastor. I'm your boss, so I'm telling you what to do. I want you to uh, go down to Jason's Deli, walk down there, and, and get us the food, And then when you go outside of Jason's Deli, you're going to see a late model Camaro there, and the keys are in it. And it's not my Camaro, but I want you to get into the Camaro, and I want you to drive it back to the church and bring it back to me. And if anybody says anything to you, like the owner of Jason's Deli, if they question why you're doing it, just say, 
the pastor needs it. Now, imagine me giving those kind of instructions to Rustin. <laughs> that would, I mean, if he was normal, and he is, well, semi-normal, Rustin would say, you know, that, that's strange that you're asking me to do that. It would be strange for anybody to ask somebody to do it. But if he did it and it happened that way, he'd still be scratching his head. That's the scene being painted here. At the very least, this is a strange occurrence. At the most, it borderlines the miraculous, surely amazing the disciples. And then before we move on to the arrival, notice something else very important here, and that is the kind of animal that Jesus orders up. He orders up a colt, a young donkey. Mark and Luke tell us it had never been ridden. We assume that in Matthew because it's a colt tied to her mother, and again, the reason that's important is that what they would have understood back then, they would have started to get this, is that a VIP or somebody of royalty like a king would be the one riding into town on a colt. Everybody else would walk into town. When Jesus orders up a colt, they're starting to think, hmm, something's going on here. So wrap it up here. The prep phase, what I simply need you to notice are hints of the miraculous. This is not an ordinary man. And then a, a grand entrance being planned, maybe of royal nature, into the most powerful city of that area. What was originally a normal scene now has become rather non-typical. Now, we're just ramping, ramping up, for the plot thickens at this point, so let's look at the next leg of this journey, what we call the arrival, the arrival. Now, for time's sake, because there's a lot going on in the arrival here, I just want you to notice that as Jesus mounts and rides this unbroken colt into Jerusalem, real quickly, that's also kind of miraculous for those of you who've owned animals, to ride an unbroken small donkey into Jerusalem and have it do so without getting hurt is borderline miraculous. Notice what happens next during the arrival. Uh, specifically, notice what the disciples and the crowds do. It says in verses 8 and 9, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed behind him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, for those of you who are religious and, and you know, read the Bible a lot, these words you're tempted to do a drive-by with them, but let's try to feel what this original scene felt like to those who were there watching those 150,000 people in Jerusalem at that time, and also those who originally read this story. It said a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches. John tells us they were palm branches, hence the Palm Sunday idea. So it says that they took their cloaks and branches and put them on Jesus riding this donkey. Why is that important? That's clearly a sign of royalty. That's something that the Old Testament said you did for kings coming into a town. There's ample Old Testament evidence of that. If this was a normal person coming in town and there was mud, you might throw hay or straw down, but cloaks and palm branches, that is something for a king. And then it tells us what these, this large crowd said and shouted. Luke tells us that there was a very large crowd and, and, and the outskirts of this city. And, and Matthew says that they shouted, Hosanna. 
Hosanna. In the Hebrew, this means save now. Some of you sing in our worship songs, Hosanna. You have no idea what it means. It means save now. It's a term of deliverance. Deliver us from our enemies, from evil, from poverty. They're saying to Jesus, Hosanna, save us. And then they say, Hosanna to the son of David. That's a clear messianic link. Uh, The Jews believed from ample evidence in the Old Testament that the Messiah, the deliverer, would come in the lineage of King David, the greatest king ever. And they're saying of Jesus, you're the Messiah king coming to deliver your people. Hosanna. And then blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Any good Jew would know that this is a reference to Psalm 118, verse 26. Uh, where, where it talks about the Messiah King who would someday come and deliver Israel from spiritual and cultural bondage. And then finally, Hosanna in the highest. Uh, Hosanna, again, save now, higher than any other angel could do or any other spiritual could, being could do. Hosanna, Jesus is now here. Add to this that Luke tells us they were praising God with a loud voice and yelling, peace in heaven, glory in the highest, blessed is the king. And you can clearly see that at least anyone in that crowd or anyone starting to take notice would quickly catch on that a king had just come into town, that the Jewish Messiah, the deliverer, had just come in town. So track where we've come because we're going to accelerate here in just a second. What started out as a normal, typical scene approaching Jerusalem has now turned into a complete messianic extravaganza. (laughs) They are declaring that Israel's long-awaited Messiah is now here. And if there was any doubt at all, what happens finally is the nail in the coffin, so to speak, and giving people the idea that this is the Messiah coming to town. And that is the response. It says in verse 10 that the entire city, the whole city was stirred. In the Greek, that word literally means shaken. It's where we get our English word seismic from. So a mental earthquake happened for those 150,000 people there. And it caused them to ask the question, And you might have noticed this when Neil read the text earlier. It caused him to ask the question, who is this? Who is this king? Who is this man coming into town and declaring himself and being declared the Messiah, riding on an unbroken colt, looking like royalty and all these people treating him like a king? Who is this? And little did they know, whoever asked that question, what a poignant and powerful question they were asking. Because you see, and we're going we're gonna to add all this up together in just a second here, the disciples, Jesus' closest followers, thought they knew the answer to that question. They did, and yet they really didn't. Their confusion at this moment was too great. John, one of the followers of that time, nailed it when he wrote in hindsight about this event. He says this, he says, these things the disciples did not understand at first. <laughs> so though they thought they knew, What was happening with Jesus coming into town, they really didn't. So who is this? And what is happening here? I want to share with you in the time we have remaining right now, two very practical thoughts that come from this story that not only will answer the question, who is this, but also pull all of this together. And it will also give you and I something profound and solid to grab onto in our spiritual lives, even in this very tenuous time that we live in right now. 
And so here is thought number one that flows right out of this Palm Sunday account, and that is that God does not always come to us as we want or demand him to. Did you know that? (laughs) God does not always come to us as we want or demand him to. So here's the deal. And you don't want to miss this, gang. Looking back at our story, there is no doubt in everybody's mind that Jesus came as a king. There's no doubt in the followers' mind, the crowd's mind, even Jesus' mind. But here's the point. What Jesus meant by king and what the crowds and the disciples meant by king were two very different things indeed. You see, what the disciples and the crowds meant by king was a deliverer who was going to come with political and cultural power to set up a kingdom in Israel, a kingdom that once existed during Old Testament times and that they were hoping Jesus would bring back into their current day and age. That he would set the culture, the Romans and the Greeks who had taken over that culture, that he would set it right. And bring back the good old days when God was ruling as a monarch over Israel. This is what the disciples and the crowds believed Jesus was doing. That's why they did all this kingly stuff. They thought he was coming to take over. And in all fairness, it was not a bad assumption. Because there's plenty of Old Testament prophecies that predicted that a, a Messiah would redeem, come to redeem Israel and set up God's kingdom in a powerful and fresh way. But let's go back to our title today. Things are not always what they seem. And for you, what you need to see is that what Jesus meant by king was something entirely different. You see, what Jesus meant by king was, yes, a deliverer. Watch this. A deliverer who would deliver us from our sins and set us free so that we could truly know God as our souls desire to. What Jesus meant by king is a king who would rule in the hearts and minds of his people through his church on a spiritual level where things matter most. But what Jesus meant by king is, yes, a king who someday would come again and at that time set up his physical kingdom on earth at the end of the age, but not at this time. To be sure, don't miss this. Jesus came as the Messiah, and he knew that he was. We never doubt that. It's just that he didn't come in a political, cultural sense that the disciples and the multitudes expected. Things are not always what they seem. God does not always ride into our lives as we expect him to, want him to, or even at times demand him to. And because of this disconnect, because neither the disciples nor the crowds understood this, man, is it going to be a tough week for them. It will create confusion, disappointment, spiritual depression. That's really the gist of Holy Week for them. And one that tragically separated them from God in that moment as they would all scatter, not understanding what God was up to. And what many of us need to hear today as we focus and dial into this original Palm Sunday experience, and this is the whole point, gang, is that God does not always come to you and me today as we want him to or even demand him to. That was their experience back then. And here's the deal. It's still happening today. 
even for many of God's people. I want you to think about it. There are are many people today, many well-meaning, good-hearted followers of Jesus who still expect him to be a culturally entrenched, physically reigning king. Trust me, there are. They expect him to take away all of their earthly problems. We expect him to come in full power and cultural, physical deliverance. We expect him to do that just like the disciples and multitudes did back then. In a very real sense, we expect him to ride into the Jerusalem of our lives and take over and change our Jerusalem. The only problem is Jesus didn't do it back then. It's really not the point of why we have Palm Sunday but it's what we expect. It's what we want. It's even what we demand. We expect him to override our failed marriage and change our spouse and kids. We expect him and demand him to magically fix our our messed up finances. We we want him to take away all, all our depression and anxiety and give us only good feelings. We expect him to heal all of our diseases, even nasty viruses that go all the way around the world. We expect him to bring complete peace now. And you're saying, is that really what Christians expect? Many of them. I hear it in the way that we talk. I hear it in the way that we act. I see it in our vast disappointment with God when he doesn't do these things in our lives today, even our anger toward him. And just like the people did back then who had a Bible verse for the Old Testament for every one of their their beliefs about why Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, we have our Bible verses today. I've heard them all over, over and over again for the last 40 years of being a Christian. Here's a sampling of them. Psalm 103, verse 3. The Lord who heals all your diseases. Isaiah 53, 5. By his stripes we are healed. Psalm 1, verse 3. And whatever the righteous do, they prosper. Matthew 7, 7. Jesus is speaking here. Ask, and it will be given to you. <laughs> See, here's the problem with passages like these, and, and I've preached on them a lot, is that if you don't look closely at the context and at what these passages are really saying, you might just misunderstand them. In other words, Psalm 103, verse 3, the Lord who heals all your diseases. Did you know in many translations, it includes the phrase who heals all your soul's diseases? And the reason is, is because when the Hebrew Bible was being formed, there's actually a concern that people would misunderstand this. And so some included the word soul there. Because God has never promised to heal all your physical diseases, but he does want to heal your soul so that you can know him. Isaiah 53, verse 5, by his stripes we are healed. That's a clear reference to the atonement, that by Jesus' lashes we are healed. We know now that the atonement, again, is all about a spiritual thing where he forgives us of our sin and brings us into right relationship with him. Could that be the healing it's talking about? Or how about Psalm 1, verse 3? This one's really easy, by the way. And whatever the righteous do, they prosper. Again, David, who wrote this, will go on just in a few psalms later and say, God, why are the righteous prospering and I'm not? I'm sorry, why are the unrighteous prospering and I'm not? And you go, wait a second, how could he say both things? Well, because what he means here is that there are times in whatever the righteous do, they prosper, and there are times that the unrighteous will prosper and we will suffer. You got to read the Bible in context. And then ask, and it shall be given to you. (laughs) Sounds so simple. It's just that John... And first John would come along and say, hey, let's clarify that one. And, and whatever you ask, if it's according to his will, he will do that for you. Again, you got to read the whole Bible in context. And yet even with all of this, I, I hear people 
who say and even think, God is going to do this for me. He's going to come to me as I expect him and demand him to. And when he doesn't come this way, similar to the disciples and crowds back then, we are left disappointed, dismayed, confused, and utterly alone. And before you think I'm too hard on you, let me just own this with you. I struggle with this all the time. I don't struggle with it with healing and miracles and money and all that stuff. I I, I cemented that years ago. But, But I do struggle with this in my life. One of my dear friends and mentors, Larry Crabb, is the one who actually added that word to my vocabulary, demand. I've for years said God doesn't come as we want him to, but comes as we need him to. But Larry years ago said to me, yeah, Jamie, take it even further because you just don't want him to come to you this way. You actually demand him to. You have this entitlement in your spirit that, that God comes to you in a certain way and does certain things for you. And when you don't get it, you get angry at him and, and like a little child, you pout and you get very demanding with God. And I said, when do I do that? And he nailed me. He said, as I've been interacting with you, Jamie, I get the sense that you think God owes you a healthy church. <laughs> I get the sense that you think God owes you an elder board that will never give you any guff. You get the, I get the sense that God owes you a staff that never lets you down. He said, since when did God ever tell you you're going to get all that? This was about 15 years ago, gang, and I was completely unmasked. I realized that, yeah, in my spirit, I thought, Lord, I'm faithful. I've given up a lot. I'm serving you in ministry. I deserve a healthy church. I deserve a board that's going to show me a bit of respect and, and, and follow me and not give me any guff. And I, and I deserve pastors that'll be faithful, just a few of them, God. And God says, well, that'd be nice. <laughs> and we're going to work toward that and we're going to get better. But don't demand that from me. What I've promised you, what I've guaranteed you is different than even all of that. You see, here's a great illustration, like a child who demands that his father or mother give him McDonald's when mom and dad have already said, we're having pot roast tonight. And that little child throws a tantrum and says, I'm not eating pot roast. And a good mom and dad would say, well, then you're going to bed hungry. And that little child lays in bed hungry and empty. That's where a lot of Christians are today. God says, this is what I want to give you. This is what I will give you. Man, it's, it's the pot roast of spirituality. And we say, no, 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 we want fast food. We want McDonald's, God. And God who loves us says, well, then I think I'm gonna let you be a little hungry. And could this be why there are so many Christians today hungry, disappointed, empty, because we really have never realized that God isn't gonna come to us as we want or demand him to he comes to us another way. And so what is that way? What does Palm Sunday teach us? Man, we're gonna be positive from this point out, and here it is. And that is that God does, however, always come to us as we need him to. Maybe not as we want him to or demand him to, but what Palm Sunday teaches us is that he comes to us as we need him to. One of the reasons I spent so much time on this idea of Jesus riding into town and the royalty and the miraculous and the expectations and the crowds and all this is because, again, they wanted or demanded this. Jesus said, no, 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 I'm coming as this, and yet I'm coming, as you eventually see, with what you need. As I said earlier, the, uh, the, the week that we call Holy Week and the Friday we call Good Friday was actually none of that for the original disciples. Do we all understand that? 
I, I challenge you this week, maybe this is some good homework for you because you guys are stuck at home. You're watching too much TV, by the way, so this would be something for you to do, is it, it, to read Matthew 21, where we left off here today. Matthew 21, start at verse 12, and read up through the end of the book, a few chapters, so up through Matthew 28. So it'll take you maybe a half an hour at the most, 15 minutes if you're a speed reader. Matthew 21, verses to 28. And you'll read about the very last week uh, of Jesus' life with the disciples and all of that, and even some of the post-resurrection experiences. And you're going to read about a lot of confusion. I mean, Jesus goes into detail in chapters 24 and 25 about the end times. And you got to believe the disciples are scratching their heads. What's this about? People are still arguing about them today. That's why I know that they were probably confused by this. And, and then you go into Good Friday. And one good for them, that their Savior was arrested the day before. The Savior that was supposed to set up shop in Jerusalem and take it over gets arrested. And remember, Peter even at one point takes out his sword and cuts off the, the ear of the centurion, you know. And, and Jesus says, hey, my followers do not fight. We've forgotten that one, by the way. My followers do not fight. And, and rebukes Peter. And then, and then Jesus gets arrested and Peter denies Jesus three times. And they all scatter. They meet up in the upper room. I mean, it's just a veritable mess. And on Good Friday, their Savior dies. And they think everything's over. And then on that Easter morning, which we'll celebrate a week from now, on that Easter morning, three women go to the grave. And they find he's not there. And there's an angel who says he is risen. And they run back and tell the disciples who are hiding out. And they say, nah, it's not true. And so Peter and John run to the grave. And they find it empty as well. And they're still kind of confused. And then Jesus appears to them. And for 40 days... He appears to them, and he tells them about why he came, which we'll get to in just a second here as we wrap up. And he tells them all the things that he came to do, which have nothing to do with taking over Jerusalem and setting up shop there and, and redeeming the culture and, and getting political and all this stuff. That's not why he came. And then after 40 days, he ascends into heaven. You can read about it in Acts chapter 1. It's a phenomenal scene where it's so instructive because, again, Jesus has now been with them 40 days telling them everything that's going to come, and their very last question to Jesus is, as he's about ready to ascend into heaven, is they say, now? Now are you going to set up your kingdom and restore Israel? And Jesus looks at him and says, oh my gosh, no. The times and epics are in my hands, the Father's hands, and that will come eventually. But for now, power is going to come upon you when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He's predicting the day of Pentecost and your eyes of your heart will be enlightened, Ephesians 1, and you're going to get everything that this is about. And what the rest of the New Testament reveals is what they truly needed, what God knew they and us needed, and it was a hundred times more fulfilling than what they even wanted. So what is it that we need from God? Four things as we wrap up. We've got just about six, seven minutes, so kind of rapid fire, four things that we need from God, that Jesus rode into town to secure for us. The first one is eternal life. You guys know this verse, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus came so that we would spend eternal life with him all of eternity and that we would do so because we believe and trust in Jesus. You know, years ago, there was a song when I first became a Christian 40 years ago, there was a song written by a wonderful gospel singer that, that meant well, but he basically said that, you know, if eternity was never promised or guaranteed, you know, having Jesus in my life here and now is worth it. And I knew what he meant, 
But over the years, as I've grown as a Christian, I thought, eh, it's not good theology. Because <laughs> actually God's people in history have had the, the, the opposite mindset. I mean, talk to a, a slave back 200 years ago. Talk to a, a person in the underground church in China right now or somebody in one of the villages that we support in Tanzania. And life is really hard there. They're never going to get in life what we might have here in the United States. And you know what they're clinging to? The promise of eternal life. The rewards and the hope that even though you go through trials and temptations and difficulty here, that eternal life with Jesus where there's no more pain, no more tears for eternity. Let that set in. That that just might make all of this worth it. That's why Jesus rode into town to offer us and guarantee us eternal life with him. Heaven is real. How do we tap into that eternal life? Here's the second thing he offers and that's forgiveness. Our sin separates us from Jesus, and yet he rode into town, Palm Sundays, about him coming to forgive us of our sin, Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him, meaning Jesus, we have redemption through his blood that he shed on Good Friday, the forgiveness of sins according to the richness of his grace. And so Jesus came to basically buy us back from Satan. So that you and I might get up each day, and as Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3, we can say like him, his mercies are new every morning. Again, let that sink in, Christian. You might be terrified of COVID-19 right now. You might have lost your job. You might have difficulty in your life. You might have all your travel plans ruined. And, And again, those are all very real things. We'll get to that in just a second here. But here's what you might want to understand. You're forgiven eternally because of what Jesus has done for you. And that matters more than anything. You know, this week I had a, a, a moment of weakness. I, I woke up and as I was coming out of my fog of sleep, I, it just hit me this whole coronavirus and stuff. And I just thought, I hate this. And I, and, and I started to, to just panic a little bit. You know, what if I get it? And what if Kim gets it? And, you know, all this and all the what ifs that we all go through. And, 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 and I just started to feel really crummy. And so I did what I usually do in the mornings. I, I went to my devotions and, uh, and, and I was reading Psalm 4 that particular morning. And halfway through Psalm 4, as David's going through some rough times, he says this. He says, but I trust in you, Lord. But I trust in you. <laughs> and here's where it gets rich. I found myself breathing to God. I closed my eyes and I said, Lord, boy, I, I want to trust you like that. And I don't know if you've ever sensed God speaking to your spirit, but right when I said that to God, that God, I want to trust in you like David did, I, I could sense him saying back to me, want, want, you want to trust me like that? Why don't you try trusting me like that? David made a decision, Jamie, to trust. He didn't say he wanted to. He said, I'm going to trust in you. And I found myself in that moment saying, God, I trust you. I'm battling it, but I I trust you in this. I, I, I trust you. And then I felt guilty. And I felt guilty because once again, after 40 years of walking with Jesus, something as simple as trusting him escaped my soul once again. And I thought, God, when am I going to learn that he's worthy of my trust? And I started to feel guilty for that. And then I thought this. I have a very complicated soul, don't I? Then I thought this. I thought, but he even forgives me for not trusting him. The blood of Jesus covers that. So I'm winning on all levels I don't have any reason for fear. I can trust him even when I don't. The Bible says even when you are faithless, he remains faithful and he forgives me because he is a forgiving God. Could it get any better than that? That's how I started my day one day this week. And I went on that day to actually have a pretty good day as I was trusting in Jesus. So we have eternal life. 
We have forgiveness all over the place. And this one is the one you're looking for. We indeed do have help. Hebrews 4 verse 16, it says, let us draw, therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace where Jesus sits, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, as I said last week, God is a God who does deliver his people. It's just that sometimes he might, you know, deliver us here and now. Sometimes uh, it might be a deliverance into eternity. Uh, Sometimes it might be a deliverance that has to go through difficult times. I mean, he delivers in certain ways, but he does deliver and he does help. And so it's good to cry out to him in these times for his help, for peace, for wisdom, for courage, for healing. Don't ever hear me say we shouldn't pray for healing. We should But sometimes he might just give you himself because he says, myself is more what you need more than anything else. Just a deep sense of my presence because he's always with us and he knows what we need. Eternal life, forgiveness, help. And then lastly, and with this we'll wrap it up, he gives us grace mixed with truth. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's referring to Jesus. We beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father. Here it is, full of grace and full of truth. Because the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So Jesus gives us the truth that we need to understand him and this world around us in in the right way. And then he gives us grace to apply it. I like how a counseling professor of mine said it years ago. He said, Jesus has a hug em, slug em approach to dealing with us. He hugs us with his grace, and then he slugs us with his truth. So add it all up. Why did Jesus ride into Jerusalem? But what is it that he knows that we need as him being our king and deliverer? Eternal life, forgiveness, help when we need it, grace and truth. And there's more. That's just a sampling. But let's focus on that which he promises, not the gravy that he doesn't necessarily promise. Last thought. Going back to Mrs. Seabrook and my first experience with things are not always what they seem, it hit me over the years this. And that is that if I had never learned to write in cursive, because she did teach me how to write in cursive, and I, and I don't write in cursive much, but I do write in cursive on, on certain occasions. When is that? If I had never learned to write in cursive, I could never cash a check. I could never buy a house. I could never register a car. I wouldn't have been able to cross the border when I pastored in Canada years ago. I would never be able to sign my name. I didn't learn how to, how to write in cursive. You see, Mrs. Seabrook knew what I needed, not just what I wanted. I wanted reptiles that day. She knew what I needed was to learn to write, not just in block letters, but in cursive. She knew what I needed. God is the same way. He loves you. He does. He knows what you need. He knows and will give you what you need. And as long as you don't tune him out by demanding that he give you what you want, demanding that he be this and that to you. As long as you don't tune him out that way, you're gonna love what he gives you. That's the message of Palm Sunday. That's the message that we need to start this week with. He's a good God. We sang about that. Now let's thank him for that. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that your grace knows no bounds. The Lord, you give us eternal life, forgiveness of our sins, help when we need it most. And Lord, even this, this hope, this hope that, that we need the peace that passes all understanding. Thank you, thank you for all that you are to us. God, I gotta believe that there's many of us who are dialing in this Palm Sunday weekend 
that are just terrified of all that's going on in culture right now. And we have some really big problems, Lord, as they did even 2,000 years ago. And Lord, we lay those before you. We cast our anxieties upon you. We ask for good things from your hand. But what Palm Sunday teaches us, God, is that we accept what you give. We know there are deep promises about what our souls need, and you've secured those, and everything else is in your hands. And so, God, we trust you. We trust you, and we love you. We can't wait to see what you're going to do. Journey with us this week as we track what happened 2,000 years ago in that last week of your son Jesus' life, and we will praise you and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor. We are so glad that you joined us today. You know, if you're anything like me, I I was in desperate need of some good news today. And being reminded that God always comes to us exactly as we need him to uh, is a great encouragement. You you, you know, it seems like there's this insatiable desire right now to fill us with bad news. And so that's what excites me even more, that the timing of this Holy Week is not by accident. That the greatest story that was ever told gets ushered in this week and it begins today. And so I want to encourage you now to look forward to this week with great hope. Because as the world's telling you that there is hopelessness out there, we have the greatest story of hope that's ever been told. And so I hope you'll join us this week. You know, uh, this week is a special week in the life of the church. People from all over the world desire to hear this good news. It's when our sanctuaries are typically filled. And what's concerned me lately is people have said that the church is closed. And oh, they couldn't be further from the truth. The church is open. The church is alive. And people are looking for that hope this week. And so invite them to perhaps our Good Friday service, which will be held online at 5, at 7, and 9 p.m. And then what's really as exciting is the Easter weekend celebration can be seen Saturday at 5 p.m. and then Sunday morning at 7, 9, and 11 a.m. Invite your friends or neighbors if you're comfortable to watch those services together or send them a link perhaps through one of your social media accounts or just even put it up in your window or as Neil said earlier, attach it to a uh, telephone pole. But I want to encourage you that this week is a week that's filled with hope not just for the church, but for the entire world. And so as we close out our services from a great passage in Romans 12, the Apostle Paul reminds us to let love be genuine and to hate what is evil and to hold fast to what is good. And what is good is we've got a great week ahead of us. Bless you, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week.